Hey, it's so great to have you here. So wonderful to have you here. Um, and good to see the sun out and kind of us progressing towards somewhat of spring, beats kind of the snow and some of the things we've had going on recently. A um, couple things for us just in the life of the, ch- of the church and the community. We're, uh, t- this morning's big. We're going to kind of get us going in something that's going to be our focus for the spring season, which I think is going to be really beautiful. But a couple things. One is next week, uh, so once every couple months, we serve at Arcade. And it's wonderful. It's part of kind of our, our local outreach. And we're doing that again this Saturday. Now, I know we have some students potentially kind of connecting with that. Okay, yes. Cool, yeah, eight people. Yes, eight people, yes. Very good communication here on my end. Very good. Um, but if you'd like to join in, um, we would love for you to join in on that. You come and see myself or Heidi after the gathering. It's this Saturday evening. Um, and we're just getting the times because the times have been shifting a little bit. But it looks like it'll be around 4.30 to 6, 6.30 of, uh, of your night just kind of uh, helping us serve. It's a great opportunity. The last few times we've been bringing kids as well. And it's a great just exposure to what's happening and how we can kind of serve other people. And maybe it gives a bit of a different perspective. And so if you want to join in with us, just let me know or let us know that that's great. And then the other big thing is this, is next Sunday is Community Sunday. And so that means for us that we will not be in this room, but instead we'll be spread out throughout the city. Um, we have a few communities working because some of those are getting larger to cultivate and kind of plant more. It takes time and the right kind of setting to do that, but looking to plant more as well. So just want to let you know if you're in a community, uh, community leaders and kind of network leaders, um, do your thing. We'll obviously have some content for you this week that will kind of help also kind of flow out of our teaching here on hospitality. Over the next little while, we're going to have some unique voices with us kind of in a unique video format that's really going to be, it's, it's amazing stuff. Helping us just kind of around this idea of shared life together, but as well, um, what hospitality looks like for us. So next week, join in. Some communities eat together. Uh, there's content, content there, but the main thing we want is people to be gathering together. If you need a community, you can either email us at hello at mypraxis.church or you can come see one of the leaders. We'd love to get you connected. It's messy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> this is easy, friends. Getting everybody in one building at one time is easy stuff compared to spreading out to the life-on-life stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's, it takes work. And so be patient with us as we do this, but I think it's been a great shift and great turn. Then the other thing is just this. One of the things we want to do is not just practice hospitality by turning in in communities, but on May the 15th in this room, instead of having music, we're going to actually have brunch catered for us on May the 15th. And so just a way uh, from Goodwill, from uh, Edgar and Joe's, just as a way to say, We actually feel like we really believe that our worship, part of it is turning in. So when you come in on the 15th, there'll be brunch here for you. We'll eat together and have uh, that time together. I know, just the best church ever, right? I know, just, uh, it's good. With that said, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be. If you know me, you know that this is kind of my wheelhouse. What we're going to talk about the next number of weeks is a huge passion of mine. I spent a a few years in seminary, actually, really focusing on the church in the post-Christian world and our post-Christian moment, looking at how the early church functioned in their moment under the Roman Empire. But in particular, I looked uh, at the Lord's Supper 
and what the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist actually looked like early on, how it's got to the place where it is right now, and what we should be doing with it in our present moment. With that said, Paul says this. He says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never, and this is, I, I remember learning this, uh, I think from McGee and me. Any Sunday school kids with me? Yeah, there's a few of you that are in therapy. It's good. Um, I'm just joking, by the way. Um, never be lacking in zeal. I remember this so well. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Interesting. The call, uh, just on a theological note, is to stay in step with the Spirit to actually take steps that we're not robots or puppets on a string, but that you and I keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. He goes on and says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, man, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, and what does Paul say? Practice hospitality. Our goal over the next number of weeks, all the way up into the summertime, is to look at this spiritual practice from the first century church, from the New Testament church, and throughout history, the practice, spiritual practice of hospitality. Now, hospitality is more than just throwing dinner parties or having people over to your home, and we will get into this more and more over the next number of weeks. But to start, it is important because I wrestle through the tension that hospitality is more than just food. Sometimes that's our initial kind of bent, and food is a huge part of it. But I do want to start there. I do want to start there, because there is a theme throughout the Bible that God's people, and you've heard some of this, I'm sure, over the history of our church, that God's people have always been people of bread. That actually, the story of God from Genesis to Revelation is a story of bread, that bread has always been central in the lives of those who follow God. Anybody like a good slice of bread? Anybody, you know, you go to, you go to Eastside Mario's and before, you know, like they want you to order and you're full before they even get there, right? Wolfgang Vondi, there's a name, there's a baby name, I know there's some babies coming. Wolfgang Vondi, yes, says this. He says, the expression to eat bread meant to share a meal, literally, in its language, not only for the sake of eating, but in the sense of coming together and associating with one another. He goes on, he says, in the Hebrew culture, an invitation, listen to this, an invitation to eat bread was synonymous with an invitation to enter into relationship and to join a fellowship of people. That to actually extend a meal to somebody in the first century and even before in the ancient world had huge ramifications, just social ramifications in what you were doing when you would invite somebody into your home to eat. The word companion literally means bread together, right? So bread, um, uh, it derives from a Latin phrase together, calm, right? I'm not great with Latin, but, and bread, pani, company literally actually means together bread or bread together. Now, if you wind back, what I want to do is just take a couple minutes because I help, think it helps frame for us what we should be experiencing in our moment. And there's a couple places we got to go. One is the story of Israel. Don't worry, we won't be too long. And then it's the story of the early church. Think about it with me. If you know your Bible, you've been around for a while, 
what was the primary way in which Israel remembered God's action of redeeming them out of slavery? If you just rewind with me and you look back at how Israel remembered this beautiful deliverance out from an oppressive king named Pharaoh, they didn't remember through a speech or a wicked PowerPoint presentation, right? It wasn't just like really, you know, here's how we're going to remember. Moses is going to get up on the mountain every once in a while, and he's going to give us really amazing teaching. This is actually not how Israel remembered. They remembered through a meal. You know this if you've been around. Every year they remember together through a meal. It's called, thank you. I feel so validated. Passover. It's good. Passover. What's crazy about Passover is the intentionality of Passover, like we could spend weeks on this because every action in the Hebrew community that they participated in was rooted in their identity as God's people. So when they would get together for Passover, these actions were something that basically put on display God's love. It showcased that they were God's people to the nations of the earth. And so if you read through Exodus, Leviticus, the Passover meal was instituted for Israel as a, rem- a way every single year of remembering God's great act of deliverance and getting his people out of Egypt. And the meal held, man, like for the Jewish people, crazy deep significance amongst that community, and it was a part of their yearly rhythm. It was also, some of you have maybe had a Seder meal in this room. It is an elaborate meal with every single element within the meal accompanied by an explanation of the particular symbol attached to it. And so you literally walk through the meal and what you're doing at Passover is you are re-walking through the Exodus to remember and to remind yourself of God's great act. Now this is not rocket science, guys, but a couple weeks ago as we were in Passion Week, you flip to Jesus and his disciples and what is he doing? He's doing what every other Jewish dude, a Jewish pe- person, uh, but especially as he's gathering with his disciples in this context, what these Jewish dudes would do. They would eat this Passover meal with friends and family every single year. So it's not a surprise that on the night of the Last Supper that Jesus was taking a, a Passover meal to, with his friends. And on that evening, he was doing what everybody else would have been doing as they descended, many of them, on Jerusalem. But there's something different on this particular Passover because as we know, it would change the course of human history as Jesus would go to the cross. But before us is the reality that at the Last Supper, Jesus would institute something called the Lord's Supper, which in its context would be seen as the new Passover. So as Jesus is on Passover evening with his disciples, giving them instruction that when they would gather in the future, that he would be leaving them, but when they would gather in the future, they would eat and drink together. There was an expectation that his apprentices would remember and participate through the action of another meal, through the Lord's Supper, taking the bread, taking the cup. And these kind of symbols would serve to remember his death and resurrection and in turn create this new humanity. So here's what Jesus didn't do before his death, and just to, I know, just to remind us, just like Israel, it wasn't speeches, it wasn't really great teaching, it wasn't a PowerPoint presentation. It's the same with Jesus, though. He gets his disciples together, and he does not, I know it's crazy for Western Christians, 
with, especially in a world that very much pastors can be seen as CEOs. He doesn't get them together and have a strategy session. I know. He doesn't pull out like a whiteboard and go, here's how we're going to change the world. He didn't try and pump them up. You know, like God has a plan for you to prosper you. All that's fine and good, but that was not his strategies. Here's the other thing for a lot of us that are shaped by the Reformation. He didn't give them a strict set of fundamentals and doctrines. For people who love doctrine kind of in this kind of neo-Protestant world we live in. And doctrine is fine and it has its place, but he didn't like lay out, here's like the 10 things you need to know in your head. What did he do? He ate with them. He had a meal with his disciples. And then, of course, as part of that, he instructed them that this is actually the way that they would remember in the future. People of bread, God's people eat together. There's something that happens, and it forms us and shapes us, even all the way back to Abraham, and we'll talk about this more. Something came along with this idea of God's people being together, and it was hospitality. So then you get to the Lord's Supper. I spent a lot of time on this. You've heard this, I know, but just to recap, the Lord's Supper and the problems that Paul was facing in 1 Corinthians 11 was because the church was eating a meal together. And there was an atrium, and uh, there's these things called atriums and triclinians in ancient Roman homes. Actually, it took time to excavate this. And in the atrium, it was smaller, kind of a smaller place where uh, uh, people would get together, but the triclinium was this bigger place, and so what would happen is, is in the smaller space, people that were higher status in the Greco-Roman world would come, and they would eat and devour, Paul says, the best food and wine at the church gathering, and Paul became furious over this, if you know, because they were abusing the weekly meal together. Some had gone ahead, There wasn't social solidarity in the community. Again, Paul was big. If you remember from Galatians, a huge theme in Galatians that we kept kind of hitting is status is absolutely obliterated in the church. Come on, somebody. You with me? Paul, part of like his angst and what he gets most frustrated about in Galatians and throughout his letters and in Corinthians here is when there's not social solidarity, when status, when the people that seem to be rich in culture get treated better in the church or get better places in the church or in this case in Corinth, eat the better food and get drunk on the wine before people even arrive. Some historians think that the rich obviously would come to the triclinium and they would just go to town and Paul is pushing back on this, that the poor should not be divided or those that would be of less status in culture, it's an even playing ground here. It's a picture for us, actually, I think, that what God does through a meal is really leveling. What hospitality does in the church, and this is why it's more than just dinner parties, because for some of us that are like in our 30s and 40s, like the dinner parties have become in vogue, but it's typically for people that look like you, you know, in your circles, the people that you roll with, the people of same social status. When we get to community in the church and we get to this idea of hospitality, that the, the walls, the barriers are absolutely obliterated in this area. Now, what's fascinating about this whole thing, we'll get into this again, I know I'm like prepping for the future, but in the first century church, whether it's in the New Testament church or for the first at least 100 years of the early church, there was no church gathering without a meal. None. Andrew McGowan, one of the leading scholars on this, said this. He says, breaking of bread was not a social event additional to worship. So some of us grew up in environments, in the church I grew up with, some of you were there, we called it the afterglow. That's what they called it, which is 
I'll give you a couple minutes and when it settles in, you know, you can just laugh. You can even laugh out loud. That's literally what they called it. But anyways. Okay, good, good. Glad you're here. Let's pray and go home on that one. Okay, they called it the afterglow. It was like this thing after once in a while where we ate together. I'm, I'm ruining the quote. See, some of you are just like, it's just popping up left and right. It's good. I see smiles, burning faces. It's great. Okay, let me start again. Andrew McGowan, he's good at this. Okay, I don't want to ruin his quote, all right? Breaking of bread was not a social event additional to worship, nor a programmatic attempt to create fellowship among the Christians, but he says this, the meal was the regular form of Christian gatherings. There was no primary form of worship in the early Christian community without it being incorporated into a meal. Everybody says, oh, I just want to, I hear this all the time, we just need to get back to being like the early church. Now, I think this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I think there's things that have changed and we may even get time to talk about how it's kind of in this moment for us this morning, the meal has kind of, I don't want to use the word whittled down, even though I just said it, but kind of it's whittled down to, uh, uh, you know, a package of grape juice and cracker for us. There are ways in which we got here, but just a reminder for us that in the early church, it was a meal. The Lord's Supper was not something additional to worship It was the worship, McGowan would say, it was the worship service itself. Food, hospitality, turning our chairs in. Like, in our world, uh, and I know we sit in rows, and that's great in these moments, but, I mean, this was a a community turned in. I realized, as I was reading 1 Corinthians 11, after a while, Paul couldn't even, at one point in our church's life, really even get mad at us. And I know it's like people aren't coming early to get drunk and stuff, but, like, he couldn't get mad at us because we weren't even really practicing hospitality and turning our lives in around the meal. I mean, the, the rumors that went on in the first century were amazing about the church. This little group of people responding to the resurrection of Jesus, eating together as the primary form of worship, and it's crazy. I've read this before, but Alan Crider talks about this in, he's a historian, he talks about the church in Carthage in 200 AD. He says this, the primary meeting of the Christian associations was a meal, In this, they resembled the pagan associations, but their secret of quality led to wild rumors. The Christians' neighbors were suspicious of the cannibalism and sexual license that they thought went on at the meal. And the Christians may inadvertently have encouraged this by calling their meal the love feast, right? Imagine calling our gatherings a love feast. Everybody shows up from Western, it's like great, and then we're like, sorry, but it's good. In Carthage around AD 200, these agape meals were the central liturgical event of the community. They took place in the evening, at least weekly, and were occasions on which the community ate sacral food called Eucharist and experienced the intensification of the common life. Tertullian reports that they were real meals in which participants ate ordinary, non-token food in modest quantities according to their circumstance and in order to meet the needs of each other. In quotes, with God, there is great consideration for those of lower degree. I love that. This is what hospitality does. For those that have less, it brings them in. He goes on, before the meal, there was a prayer of blessing, and after the meal, there was a time of spontaneous worship that may have been a Christian adaption of the Roman after-dinner symposium. So they kind of adopted the Roman practices around symposium and turned it in towards King Jesus. According to Christian conventions, no one during the meal was to eat or drink too much, because during the symposium, lucidity might be required of any member who is asked to contribute to worship. So basically saying you don't get drunk at the meal because you may be called on to like pray or, or lead worship, right? There you go. 
In quotes, each member from what he knows of the Holy Scriptures or from his heart is called before the rest to sing to God. Awesome. Anybody want to come up? It's all good. In this face-to-face setting, the Spirit might empower any member to contribute to the upbuilding of the entire community regardless of their education or wealth. I love this. This, Kreider says, multi-voice participation intensified the sense of family identity and gave substance to the notion that the community was a family of brothers and sisters. And the prayer that brought the symposium to conclusion, the Christians made their way home knowing that they had dined not so much on dinner, but they dined on discipline. This is what hospitality does. This is what an eating community does. It levels the ground. It invites everybody in. It creates all sorts of wild rumors. And if you've ever had this, we've had this even in our own neighborhood. What is going on? Because our house was kind of a fishbowl with a big window at the front. People coming in and out creates rumors. The pre-Christian practice of the Lord's Supper seemed, as we look at Paul's writing, seemed to embody four things. It was a meal in honor of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that took place in homes. And it was not something additional to the worship gathering, but it was the gathering itself. Now, I think this is more descriptive than prescriptive. Obviously, we're meeting in rows today, and we can still practice hospitality in different ways. But a picture for us that sometimes when people say, I really want to get to, back to being like the early church, I often feel people do not know what you're, you do not know what you're asking when you say that. Sometimes we glamorize early church if you look at the problems, especially even around what was going on in homes, but even more so in the deep practices in which they moved and functioned. Now, it's my conviction, this is not gospel truth, but amongst everything in a post-Christian world and now a post-pandemic world, that actually the pre-Christendom form of worship, the practice of eating together as the, as, the, you know, as the gathering, I think is actually a great prescription. This is just personal, this is not like gospel truth, but this is just Drew Fest leaning in and looking at the culture moment to go, maybe the best thing for a post-pandemic world is what the early church experienced together. We taste salvation. We eat together, we're hospitable, we open our lives together, and that changes, especially with all the disorientation right now, especially that's evolving online right now with deconstruction and people's views of the church and just, it's just everything that's coming to light with abuse and power and the megachurch and all of that, like all that's happening over the last even 12 months is, it's startling in some sense, the fall of very prominent leaders, all of this, maybe this, Maybe this is the best way forward. Tim Chester talks about Jesus and he says, when you look at the mission of Jesus, it was basically his sole mission was to eat with people. That if you actually take meals and you take meals out of the Gospels, if you take meals out of the New Testament letters, you're basically left with no New Testament. He goes on and says this, Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal. Stretching into the evening, he did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out on mission. I couldn't agree more. It's fascinating. Even the Easter story of Jesus in Luke 24, kind of going out with uh, the disciples to Emmaus. These disciples are disappointed. They've put their trust in Jesus. They think he's in the grave. 
And two times it says in that little instance, it says that through breaking of bread, their eyes were opened. So the breaking of bread with other, these disciples, their eyes were opened to what was going on. And if that could be, I think that's a beautiful picture for what the church can do. And even what I've seen in my own life and ministry, oftentimes it's through the breaking of bread and putting hospitality on display that questions are wrestled through. And there's time to slow down and oftentimes our eyes are open. Our eyes are open. Not only that, Titus 1, Paul's very clear that amongst all we think of leaders in the church, here's one thing we don't talk about when, when churches look for new pastors or want people to come in and lead. You know what one of the number one things that Paul addresses around leaders in the church? Hospitality. We think of gifts and strategy and what can get done and what you can do and it's fascinating that Paul just drilled down on like actually to be eligible as an elder in the church, one of the top things that Paul talks about is hospitality. Crazy. Bread together. We, brothers and sisters, are a community of bread. We're in a long tradition from Abraham all the way through the early church to now where we are these people where God does something among us when we eat together. Now, there's lots that could be said. You hanging in there? How we feeling? Good? There's lots that could be said. There'll be lots probably said over the next eight weeks or so. Here's a couple things. Here's the danger with the practices. The danger with the practices is we just talk about it. Right? Like, this is the big danger. This may not be rocket science or, like, really inspiring, but just a reminder that we've got to kind of do this together, right? So I don't know about you, but I get caught in the trap at time, and teaching and doctrine and all of that is important, but I get caught in the trap with some of these practices because I am an information junkie. Is there anybody with me? I listen to podcasts. I read 50 or more books a year. Like, I am a reader, a learner. I love it, okay? And so for me, I can get drunk on the euphoria that comes with learning and listening and kind of engaging content. But just like any practice, we've actually got to do it. Just like all the practices we've covered, right? We've done podcast after podcast and tons of teaching and training on fasting. But the reality is at Lent, you can have all of that available. You just got to do it. We've got to do it. The same thing for me, I don't know if there's this tension uh, with you as it is like with me, but even I think about prayer, the amount of books and podcasts and things that I've uh, just endeavored and uh, consumed over the last few years on prayer because I see a deficiency in myself of my lack of prayer at times that I just want to uh, kind of engage and consume content thinking that will do something for us. And realizing that part of the rhythm is, I just got to pray, right? I've got to do it. No judgment. We focused on prayer a few years ago or a couple years ago in the pandemic. And I was so geeked up on just the reality of teaching through this and looking at fixed hour prayer and the Lord's prayer as template and getting these practices going. But we held prayer meetings, and there's no judgment here, I love you. But very few of us showed up to actually do what we spent two months talking about, right? We've got to do it. And with hospitality... It's the same thing. We can talk blue in the face, brothers and sisters, about how good this is. 
some of us, all of us actually in this place just need to lean in a bit and go, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna turn my life in. I'm gonna open my life towards others and I'm gonna practice this together. Make sense? Now, here's, um, this is a gorilla. Great ending right here. This is a picture of a gorilla. <laughs> this is Amari. Um, Amari is a 450-pound teenage gorilla at Chicago's Lincoln Park, a zoo, and has been there for a while. And something fascinating, you may have read this article, an article came out a few weeks ago, something fascinating has happened with Amari. People are going to the Lincoln Park Zoo, and because all it is is like a glass wall between us, between who's there and, and Amari, us, I've never been there, but you know what I'm saying. Um, people, the tendency now in our world is everybody is doing what with Amari? Turning their phones and showing Amari, you know, selfies and pictures, family photos, videos. Oftentimes people will take videos of Amari and then they'll turn it towards Amari. And they're realized, they've been realizing over the last number of months that Amari, this teenage gorilla, is actually becoming distracted. Like, around their situation and what's going on around them has become very drawn in and almost as though there's an expectation that people ha now have to show their phone with their pictures, their selfies, their videos of Amari or whatever. So much so that a couple weeks ago, he became so distracted, another teenage gorilla ran at him and showed aggression and Amari didn't even notice because Amari was so fixated on the phones of the people on the glass on the other side of the wall. So they got a little concerned about this, so much so, I think there's another picture there, that they actually had to put like rails up for people so that they couldn't go right up to the glass because they're worried about Amari. They had to install this rope line and kind of deal with Amari being distracted by these screens. Now, is, one thinker, one kind of philosopher said, this is a parable, is it not, for our age? Are you with me? The world, just, gorillas are getting distracted by screens. This is, this is an amazing world, isn't it? This is the, what we've entered into here. And I look at my own life and how much I'm on the phone, and I have my own journey in this area. But as I, I was reading this article, I kind of got laughing because I thought, Here's what the church offers. In a post-Christian, everybody's kind of fed up with the church right now, and partly I get it, a post-pandemic, kind of hopefully post-pandemic kind of world, what we have to offer as the church is something very real. Not distracted, not otherworldly, like maybe some of us grew up in, you know, like sometimes the Christian movement, especially the charismatic movement, was very otherworldly, anticipating and waiting for something else, and I, I believe Jesus is returning and bringing heaven to earth. I believe all of that. But we've so distracted ourselves with the things that have gone on in our culture. I wonder if hospitality is the simple practice that just says we're here. We're local. This is not ethereal or out there. We're present. We're here in flesh and blood for one another to show other people what the kingdom of God is like. While gorillas get distracted, and come on, can you laugh with me? This is just amazing. Isn't that amazing? Gorillas getting distracted by people's phones. Like, you know, some of us thought like the world would be like the Jetsons. We may be on our way, right? But in the monks of all that, something rooted and here and present is the church, the church of Jesus living together, moving together, 
hospitality as our way to show the world that a hospitable God in flesh and blood, present and local. You know that Jesus barely moved out of the region of Jerusalem in that area in Israel? Like we think like some of us will get on planes and we'll travel, we'll drive to Toronto. Jesus, local in that area, gave his life, put on for the rest of the world what love is. And I wonder if this is what the church could do. One drink, one dinner, one coffee, one living room at a time. I think this is, I think this is actually the hope for the post-Christian moment, post-pandemic world we're in. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things over the next number of weeks. But just be reminded, brothers and sisters, whether it's in this little, like the little emblems this morning, or it's over a meal or a coffee with somebody, this is what we're called to be, people of bread. Stand with me this morning. We're going to pray.